Well, as Korea continues to add three-digit coronavirus cases, the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters said this week is going to serve as a decisive factor in whether the country will need to implement the highest level three social distancing measures and urge the public to adhere to the measures that are currently being implemented to prevent having to strengthen those protocols. To discuss the recent upsurge in coronavirus cases and uh, some of the more medical aspects to all of this, uh, we are very pleased to be joined by Dr. Alice Tan from Ms. Medi Women's Hospital. Hello. Hi, good morning. Good morning to you, uh, Dr. Tan. And uh, for people who are fortunate enough to uh, follow you on social media, uh, they'll know that you are quite prolific in in giving uh, daily updates as to uh, the situation in Korea as far as the coronavirus pandemic is is concerned. Uh, It does feel like we're in a pretty dire situation. But in your view, how serious is this, Uh, especially when we're looking at close to 20 percent of the uh, confirmed patients being untraceable, right? Right. You know, it's hard to overstate how dire the situation is, but let me try to break it down Mm. for you. The first and most important fact is that in the near future, more people will die of COVID-19 in our country. This has become an inevitability. The number of people in critical and severe condition has grown fivefold in the last eight days. This is due to the pattern of more community spread, leading to more amplification events that eventually causes infections in hospitals, nursing homes, and convalescent centers. And also the age demographic of the patients from the Sarangki Church Cluster, the age of these patients is older. About one-third are uh, age 60 or older. Also, I think that we will run out of critical care beds in the Seoul metropolitan area very soon. Furthermore, we may run out of remdesivir, too, since the U.S. has basically hoarded most of the medication for their domestic use. Secondly, the number of cases of unknown epidemiological link, as you said, over the last two weeks is now greater than 60. So 660 people do not know how, where, when, Mm. and most importantly, from whom they got infected. This means that we're not able to effectively detect and isolate hundreds of positive cases. They are roaming the community. And by community, I mean this greater Seoul metropolitan area, a region of about 20 million people living in one of the most densely populated urban centers in the world. Also, the seeding of COVID-19 infections to all municipalities and provinces throughout the country is another serious issue. I mean, Jeju-do had been quiet for one month before a resident brought COVID-19 back home to Jeju on August 15th after spending time in Seoul. A typhoon's here and floods and landslides have devastated crops in people's homes, and there are thousands of people living in shelters, which is another risk factor for spread. So we are on the cusp of disaster unless we all follow Level 2 guidelines diligently. Yeah, uh, you're not painting a pretty picture at all here, Dr. Tan, uh, to say the least. You did mention the U.S. and their hoarding of remdesivir. I think uh, both you and I uh, look at that uh, situation in the U.S. uh, uh, with, uh, I I guess, to give it an understatement, with some dismay, but uh, maybe some horrific concern. Uh, The the 
um, cases that erupted in the U.S., let's say in places like the uh, um, uh, like uh, the state of New York and New York City, where they initially had that uh, a big outbreak and uh, the the lack of uh, ICU beds and the lack of respirators being a huge worry. Um, even anecdotally, uh, we're hearing cases like uh, the Uni- University of Houston Medical Center, which is uh, the largest medical center in the country, uh, almost at capacity. How worrisome is it that Korea could face that same situation? I know there were concerns during the initial Daegu Gyeongbuk uh, outbreak where uh, there was going to be almost a uh, an overflow of patients here, but in the Seoul metropolitan area where you think that you have a, a lot of this infrastructure in place, is it possible that we're not going to be able to deal with that capacity and are there any other alternatives to, to maybe being treated at medical institutions? Well, so many COVID-19 patients do not need treatment, but they need management and isolation. So dorms and retreat centers, you know, any space available, hotels even, uh, they need to be procured to house the asymptomatic and mild cases. In terms of the lack of beds for the more serious cases, this is becoming a big problem in Seoul. Even before COVID-19, many of the academic tertiary care hospitals ran at above 90% occupancy, leaving very little room for surge capacity. The solutions are to postpone elective surgeries, transfer patients from ICUs to step-down units, and ultimately to build more negative pressure ICU hospital beds. So then we will have to uh, deal with this situation, hopefully, in a sense that the numbers remain where they are and there is enough of a wide enough uh, net being cast to to get these uh, infections and isolate it and treat it and hopefully uh, recover it in time. That being said, uh, we we keep talking about level two and level three and whether we're going to move on to there. Education-wise, it does feel like, uh, again, uh, there has been some debate and dispute as to how to best uh, keep our students, our kids safe, as well as, uh, of course, uh, the teachers and staff of these schools, many of them uh, in that elderly uh, demographic, as you point out, where uh, there could be some concern if infections erupt there in an uncontrollable manner. Uh, Schools in the metropolitan area have switched to remote learning yesterday. Uh, Those measures are set to last until September 11th. Um, I know my kids, uh, my first kid is in third grade, my second kid is uh, kindergarten age, and they've essentially not really had uh, much uh, in-school learning for the past six, seven months. Uh, This does exclude the high school seniors, and this is a very crucial period of time for them as uh, they are getting ready for uh, college admissions. I know that uh, there is this um, back and forth, especially maybe there's a Hagwon lobby involved as well, but the education ministry being a little bit hesitant to pull the trigger in terms of uh, moving completely to an online learning Infrastructure, whereas the Seoul Superintendent Choi Hyun, uh, it seems to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of wanting to kind of be on the safe side with online and making that kind of be sort of the new normal. Would you recommend education authorities really consider saying that, you know, we might have to be in a situation where online learning is going to be the de facto default way of teaching our kids? Well, I know that the Ministry of Education is. They're prepared. They're prepared to do just that. And so they are getting online curriculum ready through December. Uh, I hope that we can get the situation under control quicker so that um, children, including your kids, you know, can be back safely in school, you know, sooner than later. 
the high school seniors especially cannot afford to fall behind yeah. in their learning because they have their college entrance examinations coming up in less than 100 days. It must be so difficult for them to study with all of the back and forth and the confusion due to this pandemic. Um, but it, you know, the reality is that we do need to prepare uh, for the worst-case scenario, and if that's you know, if that happens to, to be the case, then kids will have to be either, you know, some sort of hybrid or 100% online platform for their learning until the uh, pandemic calms down. Uh, later on in our program, we're going to be talking uh, with a, uh, a psychologist uh, and uh, a therapist on, on the psychological aspects of um, online learning and how uh, that could be de- detrimental in terms of Uh, their development. Uh, But as it stands right now, uh, there is this sense, I think, maybe more prevalent in the West than in in countries like Korea, where uh, there's this uh, idea that uh, kids are basically bulletproof from this, and there's no real problem with with kids going to school, because even if they get it, uh, they're going to be asymptomatic, and we don't have to worry. But uh, we're noticing more and more people of elementary school age actually contracting uh, COVID-19, that does not necessarily mean that uh, we can uh, feel safe and sound, especially because of the fact that they can also be uh, transmitters of this disease uh, in terms of uh, more community spread, right? Exactly. So children are just as likely as adults to get infected, and they're just as likely as adults to pass the infection to others. And Schools, of course, because they are sites of mass gathering, right? Lots of kids together in the halls, in the classrooms, in the cafeterias. They can act as major amplification uh, centers for infection. And traditionally, that's what happens with influenza. Of course, uh, with COVID-19, kids have not been as symptomatic, as mm-hmm. you just said, uh, which is unfortunate. But they, as I said, they can get as infected and it to others. And so that's why we have to be very careful. Now the question then uh, about a level three. And uh, mm-hmm. as I pointed out in the intro, and as you know uh, better than most people, uh, there is going to be this evaluation period as to whether to move to uh, level three. It's not a decision the government can take lightly uh, because of the known uh, economic effects of this uh, in terms of Uh, the uh, growth rate and how Korea has fared better than uh, most other countries around the world in terms of uh, its uh, economic handling of the pandemic, as well as, of course, the the, the public health aspects uh, and their policies. But moving to uh, level three, which some people will say would be sort of a a quasi-lockdown type of situation, we've had various uh, opinions on this. Uh, I know that there are noted um, uh, doctors like uh, Professor E.J. Gap, who have basically said we should have been in level three um, much earlier and that indeed it's actually too late uh, and the damage has been done uh, even if we go into a level three situation right now. Uh, We also have other opinions uh, like uh, Professor Oh Myung-dun. He's the head of the Central um, Clinical Committee for Immersion uh, Disease Control. He's saying that a complete lockdown won't be a sustainable solution in controlling the outbreak. Where do you stand on this issue as you've been able to gather opinions from various experts in your field? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, uh, you know, I've been following the KCDC uh, you know, press briefing yeah. every day very closely. Right. And you know, there are 168 secondary transmission sites 
from the Tarangte outbreak alone that they have not even uncovered. You know, they haven't even mm. started to let us know how many cases they found from those 168 sites. I mean, that's how bad it is. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of, you know, an absolute lockdown, it, it's not a sustainable state of operating the country. I mean, that's very obvious. It, but what it is, is it's a way to buy time and to stop further transmission. Uh, because right now we can't identify and isolate all the cases through tracking and tracing if the system has become backlogged. For now, I would like to address some issues while we're at level two. First okay. of all, there are no measures being implemented to decrease further seeding of infection from Seoul to other regions of the country. A few days ago, we hit a new milestone. There was one day when every single one of the 17 municipalities and cities in Korea had at least one new case. Mm. That had never happened before. I think that attempting to block the export of the virus out of the Seoul metro area is a good idea. Second, I think the Department of Justice and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs need to investigate why we are still seeing positive cases from high-risk countries from which incoming travelers are required to bring a negative PCR result. Mm. There are consistently a handful of cases daily who are found to have brought false negative PCR test results. And I think that they represent a failure of the policy to curb positive cases from, namely, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and the Philippines. We need better border control. Lastly, I would like to see better alignment of the government's socioeconomic policies with the recommendations of the KCDC. The primary goal of the government is first to protect the people of Korea. Yet, when the KCDC has clearly identified places that are enclosed, crowded, and with close contact as dangerous, keeping these types of businesses open so that customers continue to be exposed to danger is, frankly, irresponsible. It should be the government's role to either modify these spaces so that they are safe, or close them until the prevalence of COVID-19 is lower. Yeah, and so uh, the uh, approach being taken by the government right now, uh, mindful of uh, all of these other things, and uh, since uh, neither of us are economists, I know that uh, there is this uh, idea that um, uh, if you you let the economy uh, kind of continue to kind of churn along, at least uh, you can get a handle on the pandemic and at the same time maybe not uh, fall into uh, too severe a recession. But we've seen cases like uh, they tried to do that in, let's say, Sweden, where uh, I I don't know if they actually tried to uh, uh, intentionally achieve some kind of herd immunity, but they did not want to shut down their economy. But it has turned out that uh, they have fared quite poorly compared to their uh, Scandinavian neighbors like uh, Norway, Denmark, Finland, etc. Uh, but at the mm-hmm. same time, their economic growth rate has certainly uh, not shown any uh, market um, improvement or better performance uh, than their neighbors. So uh, I, I guess there has been some kind of consensus among both some medical experts as well as economists that uh, actually getting a handle on the public health aspects of the uh, pandemic would have a, a better um, uh, improvement or prospect for long-term economic mm-hmm. performance as well. And I think that is the point uh, you're making here. Uh, th- if we look then at the global situation, uh, Dr. Tan, 
in terms of this hope for a silver bullet or a cure or some kind of prophylactic or vaccine that is going to miraculously save all of us and uh, let us go back to our daily lives and uh, uh, pretend that it's uh, 2019 all over <laughs> again, um, are, 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 is, that, is that going to be too optimistic? Uh, the the uh, recent confirmation that a patient in Hong Kong was reinfected with the coronavirus, we've seen other anecdotal uh, evidence uh, along those lines. Um, Donald Trump seems to be uh, recklessly pushing forward any kind of random treatment that sounds good to him. Uh, he's even pressuring the uh, FDA, which should be an independent entity, to improve th- uh, approve things like uh, convalescent plasma treatments. Uh, do you think that the world is putting too much hope into some kind of uh, vaccine or miracle cure that will happen by the end of this year? Uh, so there will... Um, I, I don't think there'll be a safe and effective proven vaccine by the end of the year because phase three trials involve tens of thousands of people and we're usually following them for about a year. Mm-hmm. And so just the timeline doesn't make sense to expect something by the end of this year. Um, in terms of the, the case in Hong Kong that you just mentioned, um, I, I suppose that the good news for this particular case in Hong Kong is that the patient who was a 33-year-old previously healthy man, he had no symptoms with the second infection that occurred 142 days after his first infection. Mm -hmm. We do not know if this is related to the previous infection at all and perhaps the formation of natural cross-protective immunity because the second infection was with a different genetic variant of the virus. And so this argues against herd immunity as a, you know, possible option for us. The problem is that people who are infected again may be contagious all over again. Mm. And, um, you know, in this person's case, when they did the swab, they certainly found, you know, viral particles in the nasopharynx, which would suggest that he was, uh, you know, contagious. Also, the possibility um, that a vaccine, um, if it's developed, you know, I, I don't think it will give lifelong immunity by any means. Yeah. Um, most of the vaccines being developed will have to be given twice for them to have at least 50% efficacy. And there's a possibility that we may need to get a booster or a new vaccine um, every year, kind of like we get a new seasonal flu vaccine every year. And the concern, uh, I mean, uh, all those conditions uh, that you'd laid out aside, the other concern then would be uh, the distribution of these vaccines and whether you can Mm -hmm. get them to populations that need them the most and whether certain countries, and I I don't want to kind of point the finger at the U.S. all the time, but uh, if uh, there would be, again, this uh, sort of nationalistic tendency to to maybe hoard the supply uh, for yourselves. And so uh, there does seem to be maybe a little bit of a Pollyanna-ish thinking that uh, something's going to happen because of what we're hearing from the rhetoric of uh, various uh, leaders uh, namely Russia, who uh, seems to think that they have actually a vaccine uh, um, that is effective uh, right now as we speak. Uh, Dr. Tan, uh, thank you for joining us for this extended period. I always appreciate your insights, and uh, uh, we do definitely look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thank you for having me.